Binge about Star Wars. It's presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that sometimes life throws everything at you at once. Like a fender bender. When you're already late. When it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are there for you. Talk to one of our 19,000 State Farm agents via text, over the phone, in person, or using the State Farm app. Find one today at statefarm.com. Spotted bitch bones. Oh, adult content. And spoilers. They fly now. And now binge mode. Confronting fear. It's the destiny of a Jedi. Your destiny. And welcome to Binge Vote Star Wars, proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, editor-in-chief of TheRinger.com. Oh, what a great website. It's great. Treat yourself to The Ringer this holiday season. That's right. Joining me today, now that he's finished asking Zori for a kiss in the middle of a highly (laughs) time-sensitive escape. A kiss and then, you know, we see what happens next. (laughs) It's Ringer Senior Creative, your Jedi Master, and Carrie Russell Enthusiast. Jason Concepcion. She's amazing. She's incredible. She is. Just an incredible talent. And I'm proud to have been a fan of hers for all these years. I feel the same. We've spent a large part of the last few days trying to convince Cram to do a deep dive on Felicity. She's just amazing. Incredible. Mal, go! Okay. Because it's time for Binge Mode Star Wars, where we're exploring the wider Star Wars universe from the Skywalker Saga films to the anthology films to the Mandalorian, plus numerous other facets of Kerry Russell and a galaxy far, far away. Please make the journey to Kajibi with us by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate and review us. Give us the five-star ratings, or you'll never get your hands on this Captain's Medallion. <laughs> Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. And join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, and which is an excellent place to share your favorite Babu Frick memes. Yes. Please head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our binge mode merch. Swaddle Dio in one after you unstick and unsqueak his wheel. No, thank you. No, thank you. Sweet little Dio. No, thank you. Only if he wants the, the merch. Otherwise, right. you know, respect his wishes. Absolutely. If he consents to it, and that's very important, then absolutely. I think he would love Binge Mode merch. I think he would. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Last time on Binge Mode, we dove deep, deep into Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. And today, we're diving into an all-Rise of Skywalker edition of our Ask the Underscore Mailbag. At last. Good. <laughs> oh, good, good. <laughs> Thank you, as always, for the wonderful questions. Just a bounty. There were only two wayfinders, but we had far more questions yes. than that. As always, spoiler warning. 
While Rise is once again today's primary focus, we will be going deep on details from the entire Star Wars saga to date, taking official canon and legends, hashtag not canon, into Mm -hmm. account. So brush up on your parcel tongue so that you can hear the Wayfinder's whispers. Because it's time to navigate the Death Star ruins of Kefbeer. Number one. Our first question today comes from Josh Barber, who asks, between the toxic fan division, lack of franchise direction, and ROS being a giant mess. Wow. So we know where Josh stands. I am leaving the sequels feeling exhausted and needing a huge break from Star Wars entirely. How are you feeling about the future of Star Wars now that the sequels are over? Jay, why don't you go first? It's a great question. Um, Listen, I'm ever hopeful. This is a story about hope, Mm -hmm. about keeping the embers of inspiration alive. That's right. And allowing them to ignite the fires of a new generation. And I think the prequels were also a mess, not good, although obviously of a more confident mess, shall we say. And the stuff that sprung around up around it, Clone Wars, mm-hmm. various comics, has really been great. I think one of the strengths of Star Wars is that there will always be some piece of the story that gets filled in that kind of picks up everything else. And I think that can be a weakness too, in the sense that, you know, when you're depending on those things to actually tell your story, now you've got an actual problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of what we ran into here with Rise of Skywalker. But, you know, the people who do this stuff, who make these movies, are intensely smart and creative. And I would hope that they figure out a way to work around this. You know, one of the points that we talked about in our last podcast was just the fact that Number one, you can't please everybody. But if you signal to people that you're willing to make changes to a story based on outrage that may or may not be like actual outrage, then you're just empowering people to kind of act poorly. Mm -hmm. And you're incentivizing the discourse to be even more toxic and louder. And I I hope that that is, if there's one lesson Mm -hmm. that Lucasfilm takes going forward, I, I hope it's that, to have more faith in creators and more faith in whatever the vision for your entire story is. And to hew to that, you know, this is Star Wars. It's going to make a lot of money. Right. What about you? I think that is very well said. And I'd like to commend and applaud you on your Holdo-esque, hope-centric speech there. That was beautiful. I agree with everything you said. One of the things that you said that stood out to me was about the double-edged sword of the confidence that some of the holes or confusing elements of the story will be fleshed out elsewhere in the canon. I think that's like an interesting place to compare and contrast this experience to the Game of Thrones conclusion Mm. because obviously both of those things happened this year, you know? A lot lot of the... Tough 2019 (laughs) for your pals. Tough stretch. (laughs) For us and a lot of you. And, I, you know, I think that one of the real laments about Throne Season 8 mm. was that looming, well, will we ever get X? Because, of course, we want to believe that we will get Winds of Winter, we will get A Dream of Spring, we will get the rest of the writing that George has been working so hard on for so long. But you don't I'm know praying for, for sure. him. I'm praying <laughs> for him be, the way I pray for uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> 
believe in you, George. We've never lost hope. But if we don't get the books, then season eight of Game of Thrones is forever it for us. And that doesn't mean yeah. there won't be other aspects of Thrones storytelling. Of course there will. I mean, we're already in the spinoff generation where different aspects will be expanded on. I think the fact that we can say with confidence that things like how did Palpatine return, you know, learning more about the the Knights of Ren, which is already currently happening in yeah. the Kylo comics, that we will be able to find the answers that we seek is a comfort, but also exacerbates the frustration because it means that the answers are there and could have been in the film mm-hmm. if it was structured differently or if the vision had been more cohesive or if there had been more, you know, confidence in the path that had already been embarked upon. I think that the other area where the Game of Thrones comp comes into play, though, and this is certainly how I feel about it, I I suspect a lot of people feel similarly, though maybe not, is that I don't think hope and despair or gratitude and some sort of lament are mutually exclusive at all. I think that they are deeply entwined and wrapped up in each other. Like, I am sad about a lot of things that happened in The Rise of Skywalker and a lot of the conclusions that we got. But in a way, the fact that I leave that experience, much like with season eight of Game of Thrones, caring as deeply as I do and sort of having the process of almost grief about a certain aspect of a fictional world affirm how much it means to me has just made me more grateful than ever for the story, for the fact that we get to enter the world in the first place and for the community that exists around it. Obviously, there are aspects of that community that have been a struggle, as we've talked about, and as you were just talking about with the toxicity of the discourse, and I I really hope that that in particular can improve. But I don't leave Rise of Skywalker thinking I'm ready to walk away from Star Wars. I'm done thinking about this. I'm actually more eager than ever to explore every little nook and cranny of the galaxy. I feel like I'm in a Thomas's English muffin live read. Hello. Like, you know, Get at us. Put me in those nooks and crannies, man. I just, yesterday I was watching the, the Mortis arc in season three of Clone Wars because I was just thinking about the force and thinking about the pull of the dark side and thinking about the nature of choice in the story. And it was just absolutely riveting to experience a part of the world in the story that does delight me so much. And so, yeah. you know, the other part of that is just that working on binge for Star Wars has really reignited my love for this in a way that I'm very grateful for. You know, diving in so fully and thinking about all the characters, all of the arcs, all of the choices, all of the ways that Star Wars has bled into our culture beyond just the actual movie or comic or book or game or anything itself is a real gift. And I'm just more appreciative than ever that it's a thing that we get to care about and get to invest in and and get to share together. And I think what you said is right. While this may have been branded as the conclusion of the Skywalker saga, this is not an end. Not at all. I'm channeling the old man. You know, the stories are. They are. And they're there for us. They wait. And when we go back to them, there they are. So that's how I'm choosing to think about it. Number two, Kari Player asks, incredible name, Star Wars name. Very much so. Is this the horniest Star Wars? It's not. Not even close. It's not even close. You go first because you are, (laughs) you have your PhD in Star Wars horniness. (laughs) Thank you. You know, it's a continuing education. It really is. We never stop learning or studying. We never stop. We absolutely (laughs) never stop. You've Uh, 
<laughs> you're continuing to study, continuing <laughs> to open new ground, do new research, Always. preparing for Obi-Wan on Disney+. Plus. Oh, my God. Some of the scholarship that I prize most deeply. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll run you through my thoughts on this, and we can kind of talk about it together as we go here. Yeah. My feeling is that Rise of Skywalker is actually, like, quite chaste. Yeah. Maybe not prude, but quite chaste by Star Wars horniness standards. It's very, 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 very chaste. There's not even, as with The Last Jedi, a kind of grand wink at horniness. Mm -hmm. There's nothing. There's only the implication that Palpy at one time (laughs) did fuck. That's it. Again, a given in the Star Wars universe that she fucked. You know, the, the Kylo Ray kiss, I think is very sweet, but certainly did not contain any lust or... Zero lust. Sexual passion. I thought it uh, was more of a passion of the soul. You know, we get the Poe-Zori chemistry. There's certainly allusions to feelings, but again, like a lot of that comes from Finn and then we've sort of been told subsequently as we talked about on the the Rise Deep Dive that we did that that was basically misinterpreted and that he was not poised to express his feelings for Ray. So again, quite chaste. I would say... That of the primary films, it's hard to top Empire yeah, you on got the it horniness all rankings. First you of all, all, obviously, Harrison Ford. That's the tweet, right? Harrison Ford sent tweet. But <laughs> even comparing it to the other movies that Harrison Ford is in as peak prime Han Solo, the Han-Leia sexual tension is at its yeah. absolute apex in Empire. You get... The two kisses. So you have the sequestered, kind of hesitant falcon kiss, the one that 3PO interrupts, obviously, which is very sexy. And then you get the really passionate, desperate confession of love kiss before Hans. Carbonite freezing, speaking of that confession, I love you, I know, is definitely one of the sexiest moments in movie history. The foreplay humor, you know, Captain being held by you isn't quite enough to get me excited. Sorry, sweetheart. I haven't got time for anything else. I mean, Han alluding to going down on Leia is definitely going to parachute this film to the top. And again, I think when you go back to the kiss on the Falcon, if 3PO doesn't interrupt there, you know, Leia's working on her repairs and Han comes in, they're in this tight space, they're flirting, but there's this push-pull to the nature of the way they're speaking. If 3PO doesn't interrupt, they fuck against the wall. Like, that's what happens there. And just to to zoom out at the setting of that scene that which you're discussing, the Falcon at that particular time is, forgive me if I'm wrong, inside. That's right. Basically a huge alien penis. That's right. Space slug. Yes. We have penetration in this film. So the metaphors are unbelievable. (laughs) They get interrupted by basically a man made of metal, like a hard man. Yes. Um, And then they have to go deal with the creatures that suck. And then when they are finally freed, it's because they shoot out like ejaculate from the it's space slug. It's all there. It's all there. <laughs> it's wonderful. Right there on the screen for you. It's great. And then even beyond Han and Leia in Empire, you have, you know, regrettably, but you do have a lot of Luke Leia action and horniness in this film. I mean, there's the, it the was more a love tender. Triangle. Yeah, there's the more tender scene between them at the end when she's tending to him after his hand has been severed. It's sort of gross to think of it as a sexy scene, but it it certainly 
intimate. And then obviously the way she plants the kiss on him when she's trying to make Han jealous on Hoth and he, yeah. you know, puts his hands behind his head and rocks back on his pillow feeling so proud. It's hard to kind of like disassociate yourself from the knowledge that they are siblings. But when this movie was happening, mm-hmm. there were surely factions out there who are like, oh my God, of are course. you team Luke or are you team Han in this case? You know, that Absolutely. was a thing that was happening. And, and then of course in Empire we have Lando who yeah. is just oozing not Shashing always ab- appropriately, no. but is oozing this sexual charisma and is kind of hoardiness embodied. And that obviously carried over to how his character was portrayed in Solo. So I think Empire yeah. is the clear, clear number one here. I would say that next on the horniness list, and I, I am distressed to have to say this. No, it's true, though. Attack of the Clones. And I'm really also distressed to say this. <laughs> <laughs> Phantom Menace is... Oh, God. Troublingly horny as well. (laughs) I almost think the Phantom Menace is like the anti-horny. You know, like we were just saying, you kind of now you can't separate what you know about Luke and Leia when you watch Empire. But on first viewing, when you watch Phantom Menace, you know that everything you're seeing is wrong. You know, (laughs) like Annie is a child. The sexual energy between Qui-Gon and Shmi, everything in Phantom Menace is problematic. Deeply problematic. I guess the difference is Phantom Menace kind of plays as like first crush. Attack mm-hmm. of the Clones is first erection, first boner, first wet dream, first hand job, right? Like, and again, it's not horny in a good way, but it no, is. No, it's in a very dark, dark, bad way. <laughs> it's extremely horny. This is basically the movie where we realize that Anakin's, though the specific explorations of this will, will come in Revenge of the Sith, this is really the movie where you realize that his path, the decisions that he's going to make stem from the fact that he doesn't really know what to do about his throbbing erection. Yeah, it's like, bust a fucking nut, my guy. (laughs) Why are you, like, no-nutting your entire life? Just (laughs) please. Well, I think a lot of that probably, you know, stemmed from the coarse sands of Tatooine, the environment in which he found himself. Only so much moisture on the moisture farm. And, you know, that leads to moments at Attack of the Clones where, like, he's comparing the coarse sands of Tatooine to how smooth Padme is while, like, rubbing her arm and biting his lip. I mean, it's just overt horniness. Terrible! (laughs) So weird. There's, of course, the the scenes by the lake where he's literally, like, riding a beast. Oh, the meadow scenes. Just yeah. riding up and down the meadows on a rollicking beast. Talking about a past love of hers. Basically, the Star Wars version of What's Your Number? Yeah. <laughs> Laying down like in the bush. It's just a lot of it. That's Anna- just a Anakin lot. loves to lay down in the bush. He loves really it. does. Actually, I guess he's probably not much of a bush man given his stance on smooth surfaces. <laughs> but if we can save speculating about Padme's waxing regime for another time. I think that... The Last Jedi is quietly and subtly horny. Yeah, it's pretty horny. The Force time stuff in Last Jedi is very sexually charged. There's a lot, you know, of, there's a lot of flirting. The finger-touching moment mm-hmm. is maybe, I mean, again, personal preference here, but like you could argue is one of the sexiest moments in Star Wars. The shirtless Kylo scene is obviously designed to make us think about their mm-hmm. sexual connection or aversion yeah. with their sexual connection. You know, there's a, there's a lot of imagery in the film, like the the mirror cave. This, I mean, this is obviously true across Star Wars, not specific yes. to The Last Jedi, but these like vaginal images, yes. womb-like images. Yes. You know, one of the horniest things in the film is obviously Luke milking the <laughs> Thala siren. <laughs> 
<laughs> just straight teat action there. Lips to the teat, squirting it. Certainly in his dreams to just yeah. only use the Oh, you know that he, if she the wasn't there, bottle. he's absolutely putting it. I know. It's, you bring out the, the water bottle for company. That's it. Yeah. That's it. I thought Holdo and Poe had a lot Some of- real sizzle there as well. <laughs> sexual tension. Obviously, Rose and Finn is an actual romantic plot line in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, Finn and Poe aren't together much, but when they are, they, they crackle like always. And then as yeah. we've discussed, it seems like Fox Hux and Phasma maybe have a little something going on. Now, is it headcanon? Sure, but you know. They just seem way too devoted to each other. These two obviously ambitious and backstabby people who have a really tight bond and really seem to get on quite well. You could see it happening. They get on quite well because she lets him watch himself in the reflection of her armor as they fuck. (laughs) You know I'm right. I know you're right. That that armor has taken some shots. That's... I would say also that Clone Wars is a really horny oh, yeah. show. There's a, there's a lot of, you don't realize like what a love life Obi-Wan has had. Like I mean, a significant love life. As you know, it's one of the only things I think about. <laughs> but the Obi-Wan Satine stuff is very sexy. It's, it's really great and unfolds over, you know, multiple seasons mm-hmm. and is really powerful, really powerful. I think that one of my favorite things about it is just, Anakin's reaction to it. Oh my God. Tremendous. You know, when he's like, oh, you go save your girlfriend. <laughs> kind of like delighting in his master becoming a flesh and blood human being mm-hmm. and also the kind of hypocrisy of the whole thing. I love that stuff. Yeah, it's fabulous. And I mean, you know, cartoon Obi-Wan in, in Clone Wars is just flat out hot. And so he has yeah. sexual chemistry with everyone. I mean, we've talked about this before, but the the kind of enemy flirtation between Ventress and Obi-Wan is consistently entertaining. Let me tell you, that is, <laughs> they've fucked 100%. <laughs> I would buy it. I really would. I, I mean, just like the ferocity with which they go at each other, but there's uh, yeah. there's just something else there. Also, like, the kind of barbs, the things that they say to each other while they're fighting. Obi-Wan is which you wouldn't know unless you watch Clone Wars, but he is kind of a chatty guy. He likes to talk shit. But there's a different tenor to it when he's fighting Ventress. And I'll tell you, I think they, my headcanon is they definitely fucked. I like it. I mean, he definitely knows that people find him attractive. All of his actions kind of stem from that in a way that I very much appreciate. And, you know, again, the Anakin, Padme, Obi-Wan, Satine mirror plots and the way that Anakin and Obi-Wan come to sort of find common ground there, but then not really be able to break through with each other in a way that could have really altered the course of Star Wars history is, is one of the best parts of the show. But, you know, even everyone really has a love interest in the show. Like, sex yeah. and romance is part of Clone Wars. I mean, Ahsoka and Lux. Even Jar Jar has a romance plot on Clone Wars. Jar Jar yeah. and Queen Julia, everyone. You mentioned Ventress. I th- I'd say that another really bit of horny Star Wars is Dark Disciple with the Ventress Voss plot. Mm. That's... Woo! <laughs> Love it. Okay. Number three. Patrick Mest asks, Mal and Jason, as much as you both liked Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi, in hindsight, would you have preferred Abrams direct episode eight so that there would have been better continuity and vision throughout the entire sequel trilogy? Um, no. <laughs> I think it's wonderful that we got The Last Jedi, which again, in our opinion, one of the most interesting Star Wars movies ever. Yep. One of the best Star Wars movies ever. 
And it's great that we got that. I would have liked to see the decisions for Rise of Skywalker more work in concert with the kind of strands that were set forth from that movie from Last Jedi rather than work so diligently to cut those things. Yes. And again, we have to remember that J.J. was kind of like brought in to pinch hit this thing. Yes, He's brought in to land this plane. Colin Trevorrow. Trevorrow. Originally supposed to be Colin Trevorrow. J.J., by his own admission, was hesitant to do it. Mm -hmm. The beginning of that New York Times profile of the rise of Skywalker and the process around it begins with a quote from J.J. saying, I'm not good at endings. So clearly there was some <laughs> some hesitancy. So no, I, it's unfortunate the way it turned out, but I think, you know, then going back in time and, and negating what is really a unique and interesting take mm -hmm. on Star Wars, I think is we're hustling backwards at that point. There's no need to do that. What do you think? Yeah, we were going to have different people make these movies and where we ended up, I still feel like, you know, basically it's a better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all thing, right? Like sure. we got The Last Jedi and I'm grateful for it. And I actually, I don't feel like we've lost the impact of that movie at all. Quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though certainly, on it, like I don't want to be needlessly stubborn here. Of course, some of its actual canonical relevance has lessened because right. of what Rise of Skywalker of did. Obviously, that that is just true. But I don't think that the impact that it made on us or other people who loved and admired and appreciated it has lessened at all. And I think, frankly, it's the opposite. You know, I cherish it more than ever because I'm grateful yeah. that we got to see that kind of bold new vision for what could happen in a primary Star Wars film. Like, I think that, that can be inspiring to, you know, should the corporate apparatus allow that kind of life to be breathed into the stories in the future? I think that that can be really inspiring for other filmmakers and other writers and other people who are creating this. And maybe we, maybe we continue to get more of that in other areas of the canon. But I think that the lessons ultimately to be learned from Last Jedi are positive and, and aspirational and not ones that should make people shy away from them just because they're going to be rewound or retconned by something else. I agree. And I think that going forward, I think we're going to see something like the MCUification of Star mm -hmm. Wars. You know, I hope Disney so. has yeah, Disney has a template for how you can create a ongoing multiple sequel series that fleshes out a tied in universe with strong canon and various characters having adventures all throughout this huge story. And I think if they kind of reset and figure out how to port some of those structural things over to Star Wars, I think, you know, honestly, they're in good shape. Yeah, and I think the Disney Plus factor comes into play there specifically, and also obviously the Kevin Feige factor. But extending the primary storytelling from the big screen and the Cineplex to our home theater setups or our computers or our phones or whatever with Disney Plus is happening for the MCU and for Star Wars simultaneously. You know, this is something that Disney is thinking about for these two IP giants. How do we make The Mandalorian work with the Skywalker saga and everything else we're doing in Star Wars? How do we make as we enter into phase four of the MCU, the Black Widow film, sync up with the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And if the answer is we don't, then how do we yeah. make the fact that they don't sync up work? You know, this is something where those conversations specifically with a parallel template are happening already for the MCU and hopefully can be ported over to Star Wars in a, in a helpful fashion. I think the Feige angle is really interesting because again, in the MCU, you're talking about 20 plus films, many of them with different directors within right. each series but with a kind of overarching narrative 
and a kind of overarching aesthetic that all blends together, despite the fact that you have more kind of like street level characters in the Black Widow and then literal gods like mm-hmm. within the storytelling. So a couple of months back, late September, it was announced that Feige would be producing a Star Wars movie. And I think that that's just going to be fascinating. Obviously, like we don't we're not plugged into the world in the way that Sean Fennessy and some other people are. But you, you have to imagine that when it comes time for Kevin Feige to like deliver his Star Wars script or the first cut of his thing, is Kathleen Kennedy going to give notes on that? Or is Kevin Feige going to be like, I know what I'm doing? Like, there's a power struggle in the offing there if either of those parties want it to happen, Mm -hmm. want that struggle. So that it's very interesting thing to keep your eye on as we go forward. That's a great point. And I think the other thing that's just worth saying, even though this is is clear, is that Star Wars and Marvel are different, you know, and yes. we are we're not obviously saying that Star Wars should be squeezed into or made to fit the MCU mold or template. It's not that at all. It's just that the MCU has proven capable of allowing for a lot of specific, unique energy and vibrancy right. in each property. You know, you watch Thor Ragnarok. And that is a completely different experience in terms of yes. tone, vibe, great genre, point. intent than Civil War, for example. Yes, but they feel as though they point. came from the same universe. And that is the key. I completely agree. And I, that's why I hope that stuff like Rogue One and even Solo, these kind of anthology movies continue to happen. Because with Ragnarok, it's the third Thor movie. The first one was fine. The second one you love. <laughs> well... I wouldn't say love, but I do like it. <laughs> you like it. It's I widely like considered it. to be one of the worst Marvel movies. Yes. I personally agree that I, it is one of the worst Marvel movies. And <laughs> that doesn't in any way hinder or cripple the franchise, either Thor, the individual series, or the overarching Avengers MCU project. Instead, they just kind of go, okay. Well, let's get something interesting for the next movie. And that's exactly. Then you have Thor Ragnarok, which is, I don't know, top three Marvel movie ever. It's awesome. That kind of, again, I agree with you. We're not saying like, make it like the MCU, but the kind of structural things that they have in place there allow for tremendous resiliency and flexibility. And I think the other thing that is worth just saying is that it's a reminder that you don't have to have it all figured out from day one. You can mm-hmm. find it as you go and that that's okay. And that's kind of freeing and liberating to remind yourself of that. And I think we have a tendency because Star Wars has been going on for 42 years to say, well, what do you, I mean, we're, we've been going for 42 years. It's four decades of storytelling in various different mediums and capacities. But this trilogy came out over four years, right? Yeah. Force Awakens obviously was in, in development before that, but it came out in 2015. And here in the year 2019, we got the conclusion of that sequel trilogy. And if you dig into a lot of the interviews and quotes and comments about the process of making this movie, time, time and the crunch that they were under was a huge part of it. Yeah. We didn't have time to figure out X, Y, or Z. We it's knew we had point. to hit this mark. So now there is this window, especially as Mandalorian is this great success and hopefully we'll yeah. get the Deborah Chow will be one show and who knows when we'll get the Cassian show and all these other things in this area where people are really gravitating toward are happening and, and you know, hopefully continuing to thrive to hit pause for a second and figure out what the future of movie making in Star Wars is supposed to be. And, you know, there are all these unknowns. Like, the, the Benioff and Weiss thing isn't happening, obviously, but is the Ryan Johnson trilogy happening? You know, we already talked about the Feige thing. What about the Ryan Johnson trilogy? You know, 
where else are they going to go with these films? What about some of the murmurs about actually still wanting to return to the solo in some capacity? Like, Make Solo 2 Happen is still a vibrant, active campaign online. You know, the and this movie, whether or not you loved it, loathed it, or anywhere in between on that spectrum— presents multiple possibilities for anthology or spinoff storytelling, which we have a question about coming up later today. So it's Star Wars. You know, the possibilities are, by definition, as vast as the galaxy itself. And that that will always be one of the coolest things about it and one of the most energizing things about it. So we're excited for the future. Number four, my tank. Who's the best new character from episode nine? I loved Zori Bliss and Babu Frick. Listen, I can no longer... Talk about Zori Bliss. You go first. <laughs> I will say, while we love Carrie Russell, I do not think Zori Bliss is the best new character because Zori Bliss barely got enough screen time to even register as a character, sadly. I mean, I would have loved more Zori. Give me the adventures of Zori. Yes. Dio is my personal pick because, you know, I love a droid. Love him. I was just very taken by his sweet demeanor and his gentle yeah. disposition. I think the fact that he had so clearly, and Ray says yeah. this, been hurt before and just needed people around him who could make him feel safe, who could love him and be patient with him and guide him. And then to see him come alive when he had that kind of nurturing environment was really touching and a very limited amount of screen time. So he's my number one pick. I have a couple other nominees, but who's number one for you? Babu Frick, honestly. He just lit up That's my number two. There's something to be said. Listen, this is a theme for us going back to the prequels and talking about Ian McDermott and doing Sheev. There's something to be said for a character just having a blast and just going for it. And I think Babu Frick absolutely lit up the screen every time he was on the screen. And there was just like a feeling, you know, that feeling of elation when at a job well done. Babu Frick gave you that. It was yes. it was wonderful. Also, like absolutely cute design. And a shout out to Repair Ape, First Order Repair Ape. <laughs> wow. I just, I want to know more. I got to tell you, there's so pick. many weird and wild things happen in Star Wars. And I'm a fan, as John Favreau is, of the weird. Mm-hmm. The freakier side of Star Wars. I got to know more about the Repair Ape. I got to know a lot more about it. <laughs> My next pick was also Babu, I you know I agree with everything you said. Shouts to Shirley Henderson, Moaning Myrtle. Yeah, now incredible. It's just just yes. a tremendous performance in in every respect. I personally just can't wait to buy Babu Frick toys. You know, to buy a Babu pop doll, to buy a Babu T shirt. Like I don't care. This is a, a long running Star Wars discussion point. Oh well, they just introduced these cuter, cool new things so they can sell merch. Great. Yeah. You know what I love? Buying merch. Take my money. You know what? I love toys. You know what? I love (laughs) models. Like, sorry, this is a nerd podcast, folks. Guess what? We like action figures and models. (laughs) I took uh, 30 minutes on Christmas Day and built a Luke's Landspeeder Lego set that Adam had given me as one of my Hanukkah gifts. And you know what? It was a delight. There's a little womp rat and Halo was sniffing the womp rat. It was precious. And I can't wait to buy Babu merch. That's the point. I would also say another new character who I really enjoyed and wish we'd gotten to spend more time with is Janna. I have this as well. Naomi Aki's character, Janna, the Lando fatherhood possibility that, 
EW posted about after the film came out and that we talked about in our last podcast certainly opens up the possibility that we will spend more time with Jana in the future. Obviously, the relationship with Finn also opens up that possibility. So hopefully we'll actually get to learn more. But I thought the I thought the combination of, you know, one, another character who broke free of first order control, found the strength yeah. and the agency to make that kind of choice. It's just really interesting and cool to me. And then such a badass, you know, willing to immediately enter the fray, whether it's getting Finn onto the wreckage of the Death Star on Kefbeer or actually going right into the teeth of battle on Exegol. You know, Janna, Finn, and BB are the ones going to try to blow up the control ship. And then also this tenderness and this sensitivity, the way that she is able to open up to people and get them to open up to her, I just thought was really remarkable and interesting. And, you know, as we talked about in our initial Primary Rise podcast, this film really struggled in numerous respects with representation. And I think having another Black character in the story is tremendously, tremendously important. The idea of some kind of spinoff with Finn and Jana going forward, trying to free stormtroopers who have been brainwashed and getting them to, you know, reawaken their sense of morality, I think is that's an extremely powerful story and one that I hope that they tell because it's right there waiting for them. I would also say that a plot point that's built on children being separated from their parents and raised in oppressive conditions is pretty trenchant and powerful and one that I hope gets explored. Yes, I agree. Number five, this segment of Ask the Underscore is presented by State Farm. You know those days when it feels like problems just pop out of nowhere? Helpful folks at State Farm do. Like a fender bender when you're already late. Or a thief breaking into your home, making off with your new flat screen TV. Luckily, there are more than 19,000 agents who are there for you. Because when it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are ready to help. Find an agent today at statefarm.com. Okay. Today's question comes from Annie, who asks, what is the significance of Ray's new yellow lightsaber? Obviously, this refers to some of the closing events at the end of the film, when after burying Luke and Leia's blue sabers in the sands of Tatooine, Ray ignites her new lightsaber that presumably she constructed on her own, and the plasma blade is yellow. Obviously, this is one of the high points in a film that, you know, mileage may vary. Yes. (laughs) on how many high points you thought there were. But it was very cool to see Ray ignite this new saber, to know that she had gone through this sacred Jedi ritual of constructing her own saber, presumably uh, finding her kyber crystal. You're passionate about kyber crystals. A kyber. I love a kyber crystal. And previously she was carrying Anakin's lightsaber, which was then Luke Skywalker's lightsaber for a time. And so this is a nice way to both tether her to the past, the Jedi's past and the the series' past, and signify that she stepped into the future by creating her own lightsaber. But just as the wand chooses the wizard, a Jedi finding the crystal constructing their personal saber is a sacred ritual and a rite of passage for the Jedi. I guess the question now is, where'd she get the Kaiba? Where'd she get it? Jedi City gone. Jedi City gone. Ilum which we think was Starkiller base. There's a lot of evidence for that. Gone. Now, 
Perhaps there are other Jedi temples around. Perhaps she got it from Octo when she was there, when she saved the Jedi texts. I'm going to assume she found some other Jedi temple where she was able to find a cache of Kyber. One thing that we can infer sure. is that the Kyber is out there in, if not abundance, at least accessible fashion because, much like the lightsaber, Death Stars, yeah. the Empire and then the First Order weapons are fueled by the same crystal. And so if the Empire, the First Order, the Final Order, any order is able to continue to build these planet-killing machines, they must be finding a way to access the crystal. Now, yellow is a rare color. Very rare color. That's part of why this is cool. building off of what uh, the significance of yellow has been throughout the canon, I really do think that she found it at a temple somewhere because... It's a color that was associated with uh, the... Well, she would have found a pure crystal, right? Right. Most likely. And then when it bonded with her, it would have turned yellow. But this was a color associated with the Jedi Sentinels. Sentinels possess a balance of combat and scholarship skills. In other words, a blend of Jedi Guardians, the blue meaning combat, and the Consulars. Green, Force, Thought, combine those yellow and blue. So those are the three Jedi schools. Yes. And the Sentinels also, in addition to signifying that balance between the other two branches, also tend to possess practical skills, which is obviously fitting for Rey because that's something that we associate with her. You know, we've talked about this a lot. How is Rey able to have all these skills? Well, think about her background. Think about her life. Think about all of the things that she needed to teach herself. And and yellow lightsaber wielders, even though that's it's rare, are also the ones that we've been exposed to. They tend to be complex, you know, nuanced, multifaceted characters and also often diplomatically inclined. All of this does seem that fits quite in line with Ray. There is another way that you can get a yellow crystal, which we're going to get to in a second, but it involves purifying a Sith crystal, a red crystal. We'll put a pin in that and come back to it. Again, we'll come back to that, but that would have been quite emotionally resonant yes, if that's the case, I depending so. on where she got the crystal. There's another force power, force skill that's associated with yellow lightsaber blade wielders, and it is force immunity, force resistance. In other words, building up the skills to fend off a force power that somebody else might be Mm. using against you. Now, this, given Rey's arc in this film and the Palpatine-centric incursion, seems particularly apt that this might be something moving forward in her life that she wanted to be mindful of and that the crystal sensed that she wanted to be mindful of. How can you protect yourself? It's not that you're looking to wound or harm. It's that you're looking to make sure that you can protect and stay safe. So who? where have we seen yellow lightsabers? Give us some of the examples. Jedi Temple Guards are the first place you think of. They Shouts carried, to the Clone Wars. Shouts to the Clone Wars carried the, uh, the yellow-bladed lightsabers. They were double-bladed, like pikes. Some other characters within the canon have had them, too. Asajj Ventress, the the noted uh, assassin and semi-apprentice. Apprentice. apprentice. Dooku assassin, for sure, yeah. Um, She had one. This is after she had turned to the light side. She had the the double red earlier. Got it somewhere, like— Black market. At, like, (laughs) an off-the-book stall, lightsaber stall somewhere, like on Houston Street. Yeah. Jedi Master Tossin, yeah, used a double-bladed yellow saber. Jaden Kors, yes, third lightsaber. This is a Hold fun on one. Your lightsabers. <laughs> this is a fun one to talk about because this third lightsaber of Jaden's, this yellow one, was purified from a red crystal, from a Sith crystal. So it begs the question: Could Ray potentially have 
we saw Kylo obviously cast his red lightsaber out into the ocean waves, but could she potentially have retrieved it and made her new lightsaber from Kylo's former crystal by purifying it? I think that... I would love that if that had happened. So there are two ways of thinking about that. His force ghost tells her everything that happened. Still waiting on his force ghost, by the way. (laughs) And she's like, I'm going to bring balance. I'm going to go find your wounded crystal, pull it up out of the ocean, and purify it. Soothe that bleeding heart. Soothe it. On the one hand, I think that part of the power of seeing Rey ignite the saber at the end comes from realizing that she is moving forward and on her own, like you said, with the wand, she's the wizard comp. To have this thing that is purely hers is important and good. I think that that doesn't necessarily need to be mutually exclusive from that link to Kylo. That also feels like it could be really poetic and emotionally resonant to have done this thing for him and carry a little piece of him with her and have it still be a thing that she built, a thing that she made, a thing that she crafted in this new image. And then, in case you're wondering, Ahsoka, you might say, what about Ahsoka? Her Shoto lightsaber, the shorter blade, not pure yellow. It's like a yellow-green, so you can't fully count that in the list of characters. What about Ray's hilt? What about the pommel? And that's part of the construction too, and this is interesting. As David Gonzalez at Thrillist noted- Our dude Dave. It appears that she crafted the pommel and the mechanism of the lightsaber out of the quarterstaff, which she carried throughout the earlier films, which is a really wonderful little callback to the person that she was before and what she's become now. That's right. Um, You don't leave the past- it's fully it's, in the past. And you carry it with you. It's quite symbolic on, on several levels. Yes. One, as a signifier that she's keeping the past with her while moving into another phase of her life. Two, her roots as a scavenger. You know, like this is, it's almost a callback to the her life of pure survival on Jakku and saying, you know, not only is she surviving them, but she's thriving in a way that she, you would never have imagined. And the symbolic significance is quite strong. Yeah, just the fact that even though, again, we just went through these examples and kind of, of yellow sabers, we haven't seen one in the primary movies. We have not seen a main character, a Jedi, Jedi master right mm-hmm. now, wielding one. And so it signifies in that sense, too, a new beginning and moving forward into a new phase of not only Rey's life, but of... Star Wars storytelling. And it's one of the one of the things in the movie that is cool and energizing and fun to see and think about this idea of dark and light, the past and the future. Balance, if you will. I can't wait to see what happens next. State Farm. Talk to an agent today at statefarm.com. Number six, Alex at Moose Milker 2187. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, it's freaking great. Uh <laughs> <laughs> the numbers and everything, it's unbelievable. Which faux death or deletion of memories hurt the story most when it was undone? <sighs> Sadly, no shortage of options. What do you have? I'll do a top three. Sure. <laughs> Bottom three, I guess. Run through them quickly. The number one for me, the greatest sin is Chewie. Again, we don't want to lose Chewie. We love Chewie. No having one was asking Chewie, to Chewie die. No, no one is Chewie saying, alive. No one is saying kill Chewie. Let's be no. 100% clear about that. I am delighted that we live in a world where we got to see Chewie receive his medal. I thought it was so moving to see him respond yeah. to Leia's death, etc. However, if you put me in the position where I think at some point in this movie that he died and then you take that away, that's a really meaningful death that is then undone. And I think as we discussed last pod, In this particular case, I think this was the the number one offender 
in terms yeah. of removing and really drastically minimizing the stakes yeah. and consequences in this film. So in this case, Chewie proving to be alive mere minutes, mere minutes yeah. after we thought that we had lost him, completely undercuts what had been a totally riveting, astonishing sequence with Ray and Kylo in that tug of war, that forced tug of war with the transport and Ray unleashing the Force Lightning, losing control, giving in to the dark for just a minute, and exploding the transport, killing everyone on board. One of the really weird things about Star Wars that we all all deal with as Star Wars fans is the shifting sands of morality based on whether someone you care about is harmed. And to be clear, this is true for the dark side and the light side. You know, you have the clone soldiers and the prequels being deployed by the nominal heroes. Right. And it's only if you watch Clone Wars and really get to know those characters that you realize how they all have these individual right. characteristics and traits. They're not a homogeneous fighting force. They exactly. Have their own personalities. You know, they're presented both for the Republic and then eventually the Galactic Empire stormtroopers as literally faceless soldiers that you can lose and gun down without thought about the consequences. Yeah. Of course, the same is true for, you know, the B-1s and the B-2s, the battle droids. Slay yeah. them with reckless abandon and we don't even have to think about what that means. So you take Chewie's death away from what happens with Rey and it's not just that you then kind of stop thinking about basically the impact visually, yeah. emotionally, mentally, spiritually of that transport explosion force lightning sequence, but you also let yourself off the hook and you let Ray off the hook for what it means that she did that. And because of that nature of morality in Star Wars, we are all, Ray, us, Finn, Poe, everyone, we're able to say, oh, well, Chewie wasn't on there. It doesn't matter. Like right. other people were on that thing. It still blew yeah. up. She still did that. And we stopped thinking about what it means that there was a moment in time where she allowed herself to do a thing like that because Chewie was okay. And I just think that's a colossal mistake in the film. I really, really do. So that's number one for me. What about you? I could not agree more with everything you just said. I, Star Wars is essentially a picture of a vast war through the lens of kind of the most powerful people involved in that war. Mm -hmm. And as you stated, like wielding power has consequences and we need to feel what those are Yes, for this story to have kind of any emotional bite whatsoever. And those few minutes when we thought Chewie was dead were some of the most nerve wracking and powerful moments in the film. And I just think it really, really hurts to lose. And kind of zooming out, one of the big critiques of Star Wars writ large, which we just touched on, is that, well, this is all about merchandising, selling toys, et cetera. And, and I think even more with a story like that and with a property like that, we all understand that it exists on some level to tie into all these various other ventures. I think it's important then to kind of have the storytelling strength to follow through with killing a beloved character yes. or else it's just all kind of make believe in the sandbox, which it is to some extent, but there, there has to be some bite there. So I, I couldn't agree with you more and you really stated it perfectly. Oh, thanks, as you pal. always do. As <laughs> so you always nice. do. <laughs> I, I suspect we're going to be in agreement on our, our next pick too. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the three PO memory wipe. I mean, this was literally you teared up during the trailer. Yes. Was moved to tears during the trailer. 
if you're like Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm and you're testing this trailer and you show it to people and they go, oh my God, don't you think maybe he should just lose his memory? Like, wow, that really hit people. Yeah, I think that, again, the film needs consequences to be real and to be felt. You need emotional stakes. I think that the idea, especially given this trilogy is very complicated and not always clear, and I don't mean clear to us, I mean clear to seemingly the people making it, relationship to the past versus the future, it is important to lose these tethers to the original trilogy. And like, obviously, I have not forgotten that Han died in The Force Awakens or that Luke died in The Last Jedi. Those things happened. Obviously, we lose Leia in this film. But 3PO would have been, I think, a very effective original trilogy death in the sense that so much of what he represents is the ability to communicate and connect to another person or another moment in time. And it would have been painful, but it would have been a a signifier of severing that tie, severing that tie and moving forward. And again, I think the fact that he was in this film so much at the expense of more time with certainly BB-8 and even a new character like Dio represented just placing the characters from the past in a paramount position over these new characters. And what ends up happening then is that when you look back at the fact that this ultimately kind of played for comedic effect, you get like the few moments right. with 3PO speaking Evil a 3PO, Sith, yeah. Yeah, Sith language with red eyes, Babu reacting in, you know, again, delightful fashion. And then the, oh, I, you know, right before he's turned off, he thinks of an, another plot that could work and then he says there's no hope and then R2, you know, he he's, doesn't remember R2 and then R2 just, boom, brings him back to life. Like, all of that is funny. It's not that that doesn't land. It's just that it felt like there wasn't the confidence to lose the thing there that losing 3PO would yeah. have represented. And then you end up looking at how much time he got and what that came in place of. So, I just would rather have had 20 minutes or 15 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it ends up being on, you know, literally a hundred other things. But certainly, like, explaining to me how Palpatine's back, just for one, that might have been nice, over establishing all of these fears and laments, this choice of what it represents to put 3PO in this position to have to do this thing and this sacrifice, and then it just doesn't matter. Like, what what was that for? In a movie that felt as convoluted and disjointed as it did, what did that give us? I wholeheartedly agree with you. Moreover, 3PO has always kind of represented this kind of of out-of-touch, like, ivory tower, middle-late republic figure. This kind of like learned academic who's never got a, has never had carbon scoring on his chassis and is consistently complaining about the settings and the things that they have to go through in the midst of a war that he finds to be very inconvenient. And I think that finally shutting him down or at least changing his personality once and for all kind of like puts that era to rest. Moreover, I think he's had such an interesting place in the fabric of the story, you know, like Han is a hero and someone we people aspire to be. Same with Leia, same with Luke. 3PO, it's too much to say he's divisive, but he's underrated in the sense that he provides a thing that nobody else really does. He is the primary mirror through which we discern R2-D2's personality. Mm-hmm. He is comic relief kind of incarnate. And... Yeah. When I thought he his memory was wiped, I started thinking about all the all the ways the story would be different. Yeah. 
And I really just appreciated what he brought to the story, what that kind of tone and tenor brought to the story. And also it was excited to see, well, how would it change now if we have like some weird evil 3PO or a badass 3PO or a 3PO who's completely factory reset and has none of the experiences with which have just happened, you know? That's interesting. And and now it's kind of like, oh, we never really get to appreciate the things that he's brought to the table all these years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And and the, the relationship with R2 is a great point because especially when you think of the, you know, the theory, the possibility that R2 is kind of the narrator of this whole yeah. thing, you know, losing his, in essence, lieutenant in that endeavor, the character who is there with him for the most aspects of the story and losing, you know, not to always just bring up Thrones, but to think of like the Sam aspect of season eight of Thrones and the uh, certainly with the Three-Eyed Raven and this, yeah. the way that the characters spoke about memory and the role of memory. Like, I think that 3PO is an embodiment in many ways of the memory of the story. Yeah. And while it would have been pretty devastating to have to say goodbye to that or at least to that version of it, you know, because he wouldn't have necessarily died. He just would have been different. Like you're saying, he would have had to relearn. He would have had to reacquaint with all of these characters. And God, like, especially in a movie that plays so much emphasis on symbolism and on the weight of nostalgia, I think it actually could have very much aligned with the vision of the movie and and, and given us something that we felt was painful, but in a way that felt really earned. And that ultimately is one of the great laments about the movie is like how little felt earned and how many of the things that we thought were going to feel earned just never materialized. There's like something else too that's like ineffable and feels like a very part of modern life that we lost when we rediscovered 3PO's memories and the cloud backup that R2 had, which is this kind of like feeling that happens when you lose, you know, like I remember like one of my old laptops just died and I didn't have any of my pictures or anything backed up on there. And all of a sudden you realize like how much of your experience is embodied in these objects that when they go away, there's, there's no way to to bring them back. And it's like a tiny death in a way. And I thought, you know, it's like we really, it's, we lost that with 3PO. The experiences that he has, the, the memories that he has that are all part of like our collective memories of this story, we really lost something interesting when he got those memories back. That is a really, really wonderful, important point. And the thing that it made me think of is that it also would have been a fascinating way into, especially given the Ray parentage reveal and all of these questions about the weight of the family name, nature versus nurture, 3PO losing his memory would have been a fascinating way into asking us to consider and asking the characters in the story to consider what makes you who you are. Is it something innate about 3PO's programming that makes him who he is? Or is it the experiences that he had? Is it that shared history with those other people? And I think that we would say that it's, I mean, it's certainly a combination, but that the the more important thing is the latter would have been the thing he lost. And he could have found his way back to that. But thematically, that could have been really, really powerful. So I, I, I feel sad that we didn't get it. My my third pick, and we can keep this one a little quicker, is Han returning sure. to talk to Kylo, which, like, again, I'll never say no to Harrison Ford in anything. And I certainly won't say no to Harrison Ford as Han Solo. Great. But I, this is a t- really tough one. Like, as we've talked about last podcast and as we've talked about a lot, we do not subscribe to the idea of fan service as this term that you kind of wield as a weapon against a certain type of storytelling. Agreed. That said, this really, 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 maybe more than any of the other things that you would put into this bucket in the film, felt like, wouldn't it be great to just give people Han Solo for five minutes? 
And what is that coming at the expense of? And I think specifically given the importance of Kylo Ren in this trilogy, the importance of Ben Solo's redemptive arc in this film and in this trilogy, it's just not a conversation that he should have gotten to have. I agree. And I say that as someone who fully rooted for Kylo's redemption. Yes. And I'm glad that the story panned out that way in that specific respect. Part of choosing the path, you know, we, we read this George Lucas quote last pod about how, you know, the dark side is easy and the light side is hard and that path back is hard and you really have to work for it and you have to carry that remorse. And just because you get to have a conversation with someone and apologize for something in, let's say, our own lives, everyday life, doesn't mean that you can't feel remorse. Of course, you can and you would. But it felt a little bit like a cheat, like a shortcut. Like yeah. that was the way of accelerating telling us as viewers it was okay to forgive Ben Solo. Yes. And I think that there are just much stronger storytelling techniques that could have gotten us to that point. That's exactly it. And from a purely uh, technical level, what is the difference between the way that scene is presented and the presentation of a force ghost? It's honestly just the kind of the blue shimmer, right? <laughs> right. So, so if there's nothing else, if the only difference is aesthetic, the character appears to be sentient in the way that he is reacting to Kylo and there's an exchange there. There's like a conversation that's happening there. I'm not against Kylo thinking of his father. Of course not. In a time of emotional turmoil and feeling remorse and regret and wondering what he would say in that moment. In fact, it w- it is essential that he do that. It's absolutely essential. And it would be so powerful for him to think about that without any ability to access his, what he looks like or, or his voice or anything. Having to conjure him while also uh, staying true to the fact that he is lost. And that is mm-hmm. because of, of Kylo's actions. That would have been an extremely powerful thing to do. And I think we just really, you know, it's just kind of an own goal right there to, to do it in that way. And again, so to bring up something we said in the in the last podcast, I I spent the first couple of seconds being like, wait, was Han Solo, could he use the force? Like, what is, what's happening right. right now? Right. It is just confusing. Yeah. On top of everything else. I agree. Return we will after word from our sponsors. Page Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. You know those days when it feels like problems just pop up out of nowhere? The help of folks at State Farm do. Like a fender bender when you're already late. Or a thief breaking into your home and making off with your new flat-screen TV. Luckily, there are more than 19,000 agents who are there for you. Because when it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are ready to help. Find an agent today at statefarm.com. And now back to Binge Mode. Next, number seven, Jerry asks, Why do I love Kylo Ben? And then there are multiple question marks almost in a pleading way. Why don't you take this first, given your... My complex feelings about Kylo and redemption (laughs) and the redemption track? Yeah. Why are people drawn to Kylo in your mind? Well, I think, listen, the torture genius is a powerful archetype in storytelling. You know, this Mm -hmm. kind of person whose capacities outstretch their wisdom, who is kind of torn apart by the pure kind of visceral thrill of being able to wield power and also like the nagging voice telling them that this is somehow wrong. That's a powerful thing. 
you know, how many times have you gone through your life feeling like, you know, this is all great and this is all good, but some kind of voice is telling you something feels off. And I think watching someone go through that is extremely cathartic as to my personal feelings about the redemption angle in Star Wars and and particularly uh, Kylo Ben. I don't have any objections to it on its face. To me, it's more like, you know, I've been thinking a lot about like these kind of like larger structures within stories, Uh, a story like Star Wars, the size of it, the scope Mm -hmm. of it. It exists as a reflection of kind of like widely held values. Yes, it's a corporate story, but pop culture is a reflection of, of the things we value. And I think that what I've kind of like been grappling with, at least trying to think about, is the way it asks us to forgive powerful people mm-hmm. because our powerful heroes in the story decide that they should be forgiven. Mm-hmm. Thinking just like a lot of the things that are going on in our culture with people who do terrible things and then don't really suffer any kind of real consequences other than various small speed bumps to their career or whether they have to, or people that have to do literal crimes for years before anybody ever decides to to grab them by the wrist and say okay now we're going to have to go to to a courtroom i think that the thing that troubles me about the redemption aspect is that the idea that maybe there is just something in the way that we want to perceive the world that allows us to let people off Mm-hmm. maybe too easy. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't have the answer personally, but it's just something that I, it is a thing I think about, you know, Kylo has committed atrocities mm-hmm. and we're asked to forgive him because like Ray wants us to, but also he, he does try to make up for it. And if he had survived, you would have hoped that he would have worked to kind of like undo some of the damage that he has done. Those are all like a lot of big thoughts, but those are the kind of things that I've been thinking about when we've been exploring this story as deeply as we have. That last point is really interesting because, you know, who does Kylo want to model himself in the image of Darth Vader? And what is one thing that they now share in common? They died immediately on the heels of making the choice, making the decisive choice that brought them back to the light that allowed them to achieve this story's version of redemption, at least. And it's a weird thing. You know, this is something that we're going to talk about, I think, a lot when we do our Darth Vader character study, and we'll surely get into Kylo as a character built in that archetype's image. But they are at once punished and let off the hook. Like, they don't have to live in the world anymore. They don't have to build new relationships with people and go through every day wondering if they really do deserve the forgiveness that they received. Mm -hmm. And that is just a really interesting storytelling mechanic that's at play in Star Wars. They did it and then they're gone and we can all move on to thinking about the next thing. And I think it is, you're right, it's incumbent on us to continue to think about it, actually. You know, in terms of why people are drawn to Kylo, I think the answer probably varies person to person, depending on how specifically you feel about him. And even if you rooted for him and loved him and shipped him and Ray, your reasons probably differ. I think that there are some boxes a lot of people would check. You know, I think one is just the, you know, extremely Rita Skeeter voice, like everyone loves a rebel Harry aspect (laughs) of it, right? We love a bad boy. (laughs) Such a bad boy. And the way that his character was designed and crafted and conceived 
the moment when he takes off his mask, the way that his lightsaber crackled with the unstable intensity of who he was, that Mm. was all just pretty brilliant. It really was pretty brilliant character design. And he was one of the most compelling villains in the history of Star Wars. And that's a really, really, really high bar to clear. And I think that the heart of the fascination with Kylo is that in conjunction with that villainy, and again, I do not deny that he did terrible things, but in conjunction with that villainy, there is this like real beating heart, you know, this kind of tortured poet's soul that guided him both for good and for ill to do the things that he did. He was never a flat character, never a predictable character, you know. Killing Snoke is maybe a is I think a very emblematic example because mm. it's murder. It's a horrifying act. He is killing someone we want to see die, and that right. Ray would have killed just the same. And he's the fact that he does it protects Ray, a person we care about. But immediately we realize that his motivations are so much more complex than that. Yeah. He is he is a deeply complex and nuanced character, and he's also as complex and as nuanced as he is, I think weirdly and maybe a little perversely relatable. You know, he's just Mm. very human. He wants a lot of the things that we all want. Love, acceptance, tethering yourself to something you admire, but also trying to forge and carve your own path. You know, not letting other people say, this is who you are and this is who you have to be because of any number of things, your family name, your skills, whatever it might be. And I think that because of that aspect in particular, who he is, Ben Solo, Han and Leia's son, he's this simultaneously like fascinating cipher and lens for thinking about the relationship between the past and the future in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. You know, a very meta character in that sense, but so much of the sequel trilogy's meta storytelling, not always, but occasionally fell flat. And I think he was an example of how effective that could be when yes. the, the storytellers were willing to grapple with what that meant when you were tethered to something iconic and historic, but also trying to, you know, create something new. And then I think the other factor is just like Adam Driver. Yeah, who he's is amazing. a remarkable performer. <laughs> Magnetic. Every choice he makes in the first two movies in particular is mesmerizing. I think often of him beating his wounded side Yes. As he's about to duel uh, Finn and then Ray, what a great choice that is, and how that embodies the kind of dark side energy that he is wielding. Everything he does is just electric, and you just want to watch him. Yeah, I think there's a there's a real Alan Rickman Snape comp there to me. Yeah, where you know, well before you learned everything you eventually learned in the Prince's Tale about Snape's motivations and history. There's this magnetic quality that draws you toward this character and wanting to watch this person and think about this person's choices because of the rendition. Number eight, John DiMuzio. Since the movie decided not to address it. Can you guys create your own story of how Maz got Luke's lightsaber? And while we're on it, bonus Maz question from Genevieve McNamara. I am begging you to give us your full breakdown of what and or who Maz has been doing in the resistant camp and more specifically your read on the history of Maz and Chewie's relationship. Your possible reactions were the only things I could think of when she gave him the medal. That's not all she gave him, folks. It's not all he gave her. Let me tell you something. (laughs) Okay, which order do we want to take these in? Do we want to do the sex one first or the lightsaber one first? Let's do the lightsaber one first. Let's go in order. You, the master of the yarn, 
craft a tale here. What's your headcanon for how Maz got Luke and Anakin's lightsaber? I think, so the lightsaber falls down. I think it's similarly uh, to Luke gets caught up in one of the many air currents, you know, this air currents just swirling around the interior of Cloud City, Bestman. It is a industrial, it is a Tabata (laughs) gas facility. And a lot of it is the rooting of air throughout the facility in order to split the gas off and distill it down to its purest components. So I think it gets, I think the lightsaber gets stuck in one of these valves somewhere. Okay. Later on, much later on, I think Maz either, she's either on Cloud City, she's on Cloud City probably on as a business opportunity looking to maybe purchase the place. And she is, as we know, force sensitive in some kind of way. Mm -hmm. Here's the pull of this thing. She's probably drawn to the place where the duel happened. She's like, oh, something, something, something happened here. As she's touring the facility, she's hearing these echoes. And is later drawn to the lightsaber and it's down there in, in the kind of the bowels of the facility. And she retrieves it and puts it in a box, having some sort of vision that someone one day will come to get it. What about you? Wow. I love that. Okay, so you remember in our Force Awakens pod, one of our items in the eight was about the lightsaber and how we might get the answer in <laughs> episode nine, given what? that J.J. Abrams was making the movie and he's the one who put that line in Force Awakens. Anyway, one of the things that we noted in that pod was that in an interview with The Sun, Mark Hamill had said that there was a version of The Force Awakens where the movie was supposed to open with Luke's severed hand from the Bespin duel with Vader Still somehow, I don't know how this part would have worked, but somehow still holding on to the lightsaber. I could buy buy it, you know? You don't think it would just, like, loosen? I don't know. How do bodies work? I'm not sure. Well, I guess, you know, so maybe some amount of the muscle strength would still be, you know, it's like when you cut off a snapping turtle's head and it's still biting. So the hand would still be gripping, and then, like, I guess as rigor mortis set in, it it would tighten even more. (laughs) And then it's only after, you know, all the flesh had rotted away, Mal. Oh, my God. That it perhaps that would then loosen. Listen, there's nothing Luke liked more than a tight hand. So. Let's we'll tell you about it. He needed a tight hand. <laughs> so, as Hamill said, basically what would have happened was this hand holding the saber would have been flying through space, and <laughs> the hand would have been burning away, but the lightsaber would have remained intact, and then it would have fallen onto a planet surface and been picked up by an unidentified hand. So that's what... Mark Hamill said to the sun. Okay, so I'm going to go off that as a basis. Who is the unidentified hand, Jason? That's when we start introducing some of these, this rogues gallery that's hanging out in Maz's mansion. You know, that's like some sort of of intergalactic junk trader or pirate who is just like, oh, Jedi weapon, cool, man. I'll add this amongst my box of booty that I go around the galaxy trading. I know a great place. Where I can yes. trade something, Takadana, where Maz has a great establishment. There are lots of this ra- is exactly right. lots of rapscallions in that place. Perfect setting for me to uh, see if I can unload some of these wares for a few credits. And I'm glad you said booty, yeah, because this person is one of Maz's former partners, sexual partners, to be clear. <coughs> so it's somebody <coughs> who soon, as soon as they pick it up, they know this is a treasure that Maz would cherish. Maybe this is how I, after my falling out with Maz, can get back into Maz's good graces. But Mm. in the process of 
the lightsaber moving from point A to point B over the years, working its way back to Maz. Kylo, who, as we know, is hunting for these totems of the past, got his hands on Vader's helmet. We think of the way Kylo, when he sees the lightsaber in The Force Awakens in the forest, says, that belongs to me, right? He feels ownership over that because it, he doesn't think of it as being Luke's. He think, thinks of it as being Anakin's. Kylo was on the hunt. And so Maz had to continue to move this possession from safe house to safe house to keep it away from his clutches, eventually sequestering it right in the last place he'd think to look, the place where all her other treasures were, Jason. That's all I got. (laughs) I got got something else. Let's make it even spicier. Let's make it even more fun. What if it's uh, our good buddy Hondo Anaka who picks up the lightsaber? wow. I could see it for sure. I would love it. Traveling from place to place looking to sell something. You never know whose side he's going to be on. You just never know. And maybe he's like, you know. like the wind. It would be years later, right? So experience some setbacks older now. A little down on his luck. He's just kind of selling stuff that he has. I think there's some pathos there. There's some pathos there to be mined. I like it. The One of the key questions really is, when in the timeline does it come into Maz's possession? Mm. I like the idea of the saber actually like traveling place to place, hand to hand for quite some time before it makes uh, like, it to Maz. Like the red violin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I like it. What about the second part of this question? Who or what was Maz doing at the resistance camp? I mean, I think the answer here is first and foremost, Maz and Chewie definitely have a thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's not forget the where's my boyfriend and I like that Wookiee lines from yeah. The Force Awakens. You know, we know from Rio and Solo that there's nothing like curling up in a Wookiee's lap. So maybe that's all they're doing. Maybe it's just like cuddle time. But I don't think so. I think there's more to it. Listen, I think, you know, like Chewie has been around the block. Maz as well. Oh, yeah. These are two that know how to take their pleasure where they find it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. They understand what war means in the galaxy. And then you have to take these small moments in the arms of a Wookiee or what have you in order to feel good and feel whole and feel like a living person that deserves tenderness and love. And I wholly and completely agree with you. In the arms of a Wookiee. And plus, you know, like Chewie, listen, there's no dignified way to say this, but he's out here uh, fighting wars with his dick out. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're right. He's of of all of our friends. He's out here with his just out there. He's out here with his dick out running around the Death Star with his dick swinging. I mean, Chewie and the Ewoks. It's just out there for you. All of it. All of it. Just right out there. His butthole and his dick are just out. Maz knew what she was working with and she couldn't wait. You could just look. He's not shy. He's not afraid of it. (laughs) I think that, uh, you know, Maz, as we've discussed, is just in touch with her sexuality in a way that is inspiring. And I think that... She's a thousand. She knows what she's doing. (laughs) Knows her body. (laughs) She is a thousand. I think that, uh, you know, she'd be open to any number of possibilities at the Resistance base. Obviously, just not not a lot of numbers at the Resistance base. You know, one of the kind of strange things about the story is ultimately that in Last Jedi, nobody answers Leia's personal code. Yeah. But everybody comes for Lando, you know, assuming he also said, do this for Leia, but put a pin in that for now. (laughs) Not a lot of people at the base. Not a lot of people at the base initially, but I think 
think that just brings you closer to the people who are there. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Claude, Claude, who's in the Falcon with uh-huh. Poe and Finn and mm-hmm. R two at the beginning. I think that uh, I think that Maz and Claude could probably oh, have interesting. And probably had quite a few adventures. All those little tentacles on Claude. <laughs> Imagine what you could do with that. Maz loves to experiment, and. We talked about this a, a while ago in a mailbag where we were just wishing for ships, and I said Maz and Lando, and I stand by that. I think that something happens with Maz and Lando as soon as they're in the same place. These are two characters right. who are as in touch with their sexuality as any characters yeah. in Star Wars who are not afraid to lean into that instant connection yeah, with another right. person or 100%. humanoid. And I think they had some fun once the champagne was popping. All right, number nine. Jared Luth asks, who does the Dion Waiters Award go to? Oh, so yeah, the heat check. Listen. Uh, a rewatchables question here for Rise of Skywalker. Who's your pick or your picks? Armitage Hux, Fox Hux. Fox Hux. That was my pick. He, listen, he's been fun the entire time. Obviously, very menacing in The Force Awakens. Somewhat more a figure of almost, you know, when a, when someone is so stern and so dedicated to order that you just want to put things out of place. That was the kind of vibe that Hux had in The Last Jedi. And then I think the insane decision to beef up his eyebrows in that movie is something that needs to be explored. But in The Rise of Skywalker, he goes to just another level of energy and comedy. Like the way he says, I'm the spy is... (laughs) Like Peter Sellers or something, you know, like it's incredible. <laughs> Domino Gleason is is an actor who is just like, you know what? I'm just going to let it ride. I'm just going to have a great fucking time right now. Yeah, he definitely enjoys being in Star Wars, yes. which is awesome. Yes. Wonderful to see. What I loved you? also, you know, we, we don't focus on this because, of course, the scene results in his untimely demise or perhaps <laughs> timely demise, but... <laughs> the thought that he puts into the presentation of his wound. Yeah. Like, <laughs> the bandage, the crutch, the hobble. It's just shoot me in the wonderful. arm. Shoot me in the arm. Otherwise, they'll know and they shoot him in the leg. Hilarious. So good. It's just really, really funny. I think that, you know, this might seem a, like a surprising, contrary, and perhaps even nonsensical pick, but I'm going to throw it out there yeah. for the sake of discussion. On the one hand, yes, he is a primary character in the in the film and is is even in many ways the premise of the film. But if we're thinking about what a heat check is, you shoot and shoot and shoot. Yeah. Until your luck runs out. Okay. Palpy. I'm throwing oh, out yes. Palpy. I mean, listen, Ian McDermott is a fucking legend. And <laughs> if there's one huge electrified silver line <laughs> in this movie, it's the fact that we got McDermott we get back, to in see his, him. Yeah. back in his power role chewing scenery like a fucking sarlacc (laughs) (laughs) digesting it chew by chew over a thousand scenes you know we get to see him say unnatural and good and uh, just all of those moments he's just absolutely crushing it until he is literally obliterated by his own stop shooting yourself i'll never i this will never not bother me when it starts to hurt you stop doing it (laughs) <laughs> she <laughs> only has the one move, really, at the end of the day. When the power is unlimited, I guess it's really hard to... Unlimited power. I mean, that's, to be fair, though, that's like what Dion Waiter says to himself every I time he, his number is called, unlimited power, and then eventually it ends. I mean, I, I would imagine that the consensus is probably Babu Frick amongst Babu's a great the contender. fans in general. 
And then Babu yes. crushes it. He's the one thing that everybody can kind of agree on was that, oh yeah, Babu was great. An electric handful of lines and moments from Babu and really is kind of sucking all of the air into the lines yes. as they're delivered, but in a good way. Like you're only interested in looking at Babu when Babu is on the screen and that that is very heat check-esque, but also like there is this kind of over-the-top quality to it, again, in an appealing way. I would also throw out Lando as a heat sure. check candidate. I mean, you when know, he shows up. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was just going to say. That outfit. Unbelievable. My God. Unbelievable. L- Lando just has a Pasana RV <laughs> with... <laughs> All sorts of newly decorated and adorned capes and helmets. And also like jewels. Structurally, this movie gave Lando like four turn around and look at the camera introductions. Like somebody saying, how are we going to do this? You know, like Poe is, I don't know know what to do. And then all of a sudden Lando is there and turns around. Well, you know, kid, what we did back in my day. (laughs) (laughs) He got like four of those. The ultimate one in the film, yeah. the, the Endgame-esque arrival of, you know, yeah. the entire Resistance yeah. and Humanity fleet. While we're speaking of Lando and Pasana, though, I'll throw out a, another one, and this is not a traditional pick because it's an object, but I'll, I'll throw out Ochi's ship oh, for I a like check. It. Yeah, yeah, sure. Somehow just sitting there in the same spot on Pasana, going unstolen for That's decades. Decades. No one could get to it. I guess they were afraid of the devil's <laughs> snare, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh god i mean that whole thing was just it was very like chester copperpot from the goonies like this explorer who like died in a tunnel and then they find all his stuff <laughs> like but at least chester copperpot was like 80 feet underground <laughs> whereas like this dude's ship is literally on like a hill a rock escarpment <laughs> a rock formation yeah. where everybody could see it from like 10 miles away but that's fine. It's r- remarkable. Unbelievable. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, number 10. Yeah. Sean Ditzel asks, which storyline or character is the most mm. likely to get a Disney Plus series? What do you got? Hmm. Most likely is tough, obviously, because we don't actually we don't know, know. But I think that some intriguing, we'll reframe it slightly, some intriguing possibilities. I think that something with Ray's Jedi Academy. I love it. There's the the moment on Pasana when she's looking out at the younglings. Yeah, I love it. And obviously, a lot of that is about her own history and thinking about being young and learning and having that kind of nurturing environment and education. And I think that given how Ray feels about her own past, she will want to pass on what she has learned. Yeah. As Yoda told Luke. And I think that something at the new Jedi Academy could be really cool. Relatedly, I think that if making Rey the primary focus of a Disney Plus show just seems inherently unlikely, that an interesting one-degree-remove thing, given the Finn for sensitivity conversation in the wake of this film, would be Finn training to be a Jedi and Finn's adventures at the beginning of his Jedi education and Jedi exploits, and then that could be connected to what Ray was doing, even yeah. if Ray wasn't the primary focus. So I think that would be cool. I'd also love to see a Disney Plus show, and I think that this would fit the Disney Plus MO so far, given you know what Favreau has said about that freakier side of Star Wars with The Mandalorian, given that the Cassian Ander show is supposed to be like a spy thriller. I, I hope personally that Obi-Wan's show is just about him fucking in the desert, but time yeah. will tell. 
I think that seeing a Zori and Poe spice running days yeah. show, given what we learned about his spice running past and Babu could be in the mix and seeing a different aspect of Poe's character and getting Zori in there, I think would mm. be really cool. And then my, my other thought was something on the Sith Eternal, you know, <laughs> learning these guys, about the Sith Eternal, Sith Eternal, I gotta tell you. Now, I guess the show is just 30 seasons of building <laughs> Star Destroyers, which is maybe not ideal. But other than that, I think it would be interesting to learn more about the goings-on on Exegol. And then finally, I'd love for the uh, the adventures of Ochi, the Jedi Hunter. You know, give me more Dio. Give me, like, the next wave Disney Plus experience where there's something interactive about mm. the storytelling. So instead of being afraid or fearful of the discourse around the video game aspect of the storytelling, lean in. You know, you build your script around Ochi and his Jedi hunting adventures, daggers, etc. But you allow the viewer to participate in the quests in some capacity. I think that could be cool. What about you? Kind of building off a point I made earlier, let's take Jana and her crew mm-hmm. of ex-First Order stormtroopers. Yes. And we know that, you know, the New Republic as such is basically gone. The governmental centers have been wiped away. Who knows, like, what the post-war order is going to look like. The galaxy mustered its ships to meet this one vast threat. But you would have to imagine that the appetite for continuing the conflict mm-hmm. would would fade it, throughout much of the galaxy. But Janna has skin in the game. Her people have skin in the game. They're going to want to find these First Order facilities where stormtroopers are going to be trained. They're going to want to find these, for lack of a more awful word, the recruiters who would go around and target children for kidnapping. And they'd want to get some payback from those people. And so some sort of kind of like rollicking adventure of the week. Let's go to this place. I heard that this first order war criminal was hiding on this planet. Let's go get him kind of thing. Yeah. I would love to see something like that. I love that. What else? Any other Disney plus spinoffs from this film? Listen, Zori is the easy one. Young Zori and young Poe, the spice runners. I love that idea because listen again, let's cast Carrie Russell. Let's just cast her in more stuff. You know, those are the ones. And like Maz, I want to know what Maz has been up to for a thousand years. Yeah, And again, like just a kind of like my Tatooine Cantina idea. Why not something <laughs> about Maz's place? You know, it's obviously it's been destroyed. I love it. But what happened? What's gone on Take there? What kind of people have met there? What kind of things have happened there? Uh, one more. Like a succession, but the First Order. So pre-Imperial Remnants becoming the First Order, you had like Admiral Ray Sloan, you had... Brendall Hux and you had Armitage mm-hmm. and you had all these other leaders that they meet up with on the Emperor's Eclipse ship. Before Snoke really arrives on the scene, as we now know, a puppet of the Emperor to take control of this enterprise, because mm-hmm. I guess he didn't want anybody to know that he was doing the jockeying for power. Because, you know, uh, Empire's End ends mm-hmm. with Admiral Sloan saying, this is going to be my empire." She briefly considers turning herself in and what that would be like. Would they let her off? Would they let her fly ships? Would the New Republic let her fly? And then she's like, actually, I've got a chance to kind of mold this thing in my new image. And they're all thinking that, you know? So, like, Mm -hmm. what would this kind of, like, intensely backstabby POV from the perspective of the bad guys kind of thing be with all these characters jockeying for position, trying to be the next big bad out here in the Unknown Regions? That's a great one. I wonder if, given the presence of characters like Moff Gideon, we'll get 
into that on The yeah. Mandalorian, but obviously the pri- we would think the primary focus will remain on Mando and LBY. And that brings yeah. us to our final question today, the bonus from Abby Hamblet. <laughs> Why wasn't LBY, little baby Yoda, in Rise of Skywalker? Is he okay? Where is he? That's a great point. So we got to remember a couple of things about the timeline here. Yeah. Mandalorian takes place in 9 ABY. So that's before this entire trilogy. Yes. So Baby Yoda, of course, was also not in The Force Awakens or in The Last Jedi. It's not sure. like The Mandalorian takes place between those things. So that's that's one thing. In that sense, whatever the answer is has been the answer and will continue to be the answer. I think there's just an aspect to this of like, they can't spoil The Mandalorian now. Yeah, they can't You know, The Mandalorian is about what happens to Baby Yoda. And so if Baby Yoda showed up in the... There's no reason to think that this is true. Zero. But if there was an alternate reality in which Baby Yoda had been in The Rise of Skywalker, they would have had to have edited him out. Yeah. Because as we talk about on every Mando episode, the whole propulsive force of The Mandalorian is our obsessive love and also like debilitating fear. I know. Over what is going to happen to Baby Yoda. And so they can't show us that in 35 ABY, he's okay. They just can't, unfortunately. I would love to know that he's okay. Again, he's too cute. I will predict, (laughs) and and I've predicted this before, but I think that we see him in whatever the next trilogy is Mm -hmm. in some form or fashion. I think he's around for that. I think think that will depend on how far we are in The Mandalorian by then and when in the canon timeline that next trilogy takes place. Because I think if it's after The Mandalorian by any sizable stretch of time, and the core of the Mandalorian is still what happens to him, then we won't. I think until we know what happens to him, we won't get him elsewhere. Now, maybe we'll get, maybe we'll find out more about what happened in his first 50 years at some point, like a comic or something. That would be fun. But, you know, I think we we talked about this in both our Mando Chapter 7 pod and our Rise of Skywalker pod. I think we both feel increasingly strongly that it's more likely that we start to see aspects of the Rise of Skywalker plot come into the Mandalorian. Where the question of Palpatine's resurrection and return could have some bearing on Baby Yoda's plot. You know, the force healing in chapter seven that we saw and then the, you know, ability to understand that that's what he was trying to do in chapter two, what Dr. Pershing and Moff Gideon and the Imperial Remnant want him for. Moff Gideon's comments about how we can't possibly understand how important he is. Is Baby Yoda going to play some role in the Imperial Remnant trying to return Palpatine to power? Or any number of other possibilities, but it seems like it seems like that's definitely possible. Protect him at all costs. Protect all him. Protect him at all costs. And listen, we're getting. It's just a fascinating time in, in little baby Yoda's life. You know, he's got a, he's developing a little personality. He's about to hit the terrible sixties. Yeah, he's just casually force choking. And he's Tough you know look for our guy throwing tantrums. <gasps> uh, I'm excited to see what's next for my little baby Yoda. I love Me him too. so much. Sweet. Bobby. And I want to say uh, thanks to everyone who sent us via Instagram and other oh social media platforms pictures of your little baby wonderful. Yoda cookies, your little baby your Yoda ornaments. sock puppets, wonderful. all the wonderful little baby Yoda stuff. Just keep doing it because he's a he's a light in all of our lives. It is. It just brings us so much joy to see that. It's really wonderful. All right, friends. Our journey nears its end. As we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. But it's not over yet. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the speeder and continue to explore the galaxy. And that you'll join us next time for our discussion of The Mandalorian Season 1 finale. And 
stay tuned after that as well because there's more Binge Mode Star Wars to come. Until then, remember, we've passed on all we know. Hey, do you want to play uh, Hollow Chess now that uh, Chewie's asleep? We can finally do it. Yeah, let's do that. But can we just wipe the bench down? This is where Chewie sits and it's, I mean, I don't want to say anything. This is his ship. Yeah. Do you know what I'm going to say? No. You don't know what I'm going to say? No. His fucking nuts and his ass are just raw on the seat all the time. You don't think that's fucking gross? Sometimes you look and he'll just have like things stuck in his hair. Down there, and he's just sitting on stuff. This is just me? That's just me, I guess?